Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with poet Gina Ferreira. Gina was born here in New Orleans, received her MFA from UNO, and is the author of a few books and chapbooks, including The Size of Sparrows, Ethereal Avalanche, Carville Amid Moss and Resurrection Fern, and Fitting the Sixth Finger. Her work has appeared in numerous journals, and she also coordinates the Poetry Buffet, a monthly reading series sponsored by the New Orleans Library and held at Milton H. Ladder Branch on St. Charles. Thank you so much for coming today, Gina. Thank you, David. Well, um, it's the new year. So what are your writing goals for 2019? Have you made any? I have, actually. I have a manuscript that um, I sort of got together, I would say. I've been working on these poems for a long time. It's probably five years worth of work. And I've kind of assembled them into a working manuscript. And so now I'm looking for a publisher. Oh, wow. And I hope to find one sometime in 2019. We'll see where the spaghetti sticks on the wall. Yes. Yeah. I like that, that phrase. Yeah, I too. figured you would. So your name has the collection of vowels in it. Yes, so. since I like spaghetti sticking yeah. on the wall. Yes. I, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. Um, what's, the, what's the manuscript kind of concerning? I think this manuscript, I'm calling it The Weight of the Ripened, hmm. and I think it is a manuscript that has certainly narrative in it. I think the, the, the manuscript also is looking kind of at the land here um, in the city, around the city, hmm. um, and it, I think it looks a lot at like sort of the fragility of that land. Um, and yet, kind of despite the fact that we're hearing we're losing our coast, this is happening, things still bloom here. It's almost like it's a wild place. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of the poems actually look at that, too. I could see that. Is there any part of the city in particular, or parts of the city, that really inspired the work? No. We live near Bayou St. John. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Bayou St. John is just really... In City Park, both of those places are just magical to me. City Park, though, I mean, I do find that it's getting less wild. Um, it's becoming more developed. That certainly has happened since Hurricane Katrina. Mm. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, There is beauty in, in the wilderness, though, and in the wild. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Um, you grew up here in New Orleans? I did. Yeah, I'm in New Orleans native. Where'd you grow up? I grew up near the lakefront, um, okay. sort of not too far. Do you know where the Greek church is? Yes, I do. Yes, right around that, that so neck of the woods. On the bayou, yes, right? yes, okay. yes. The bayou has always been the backdrop for my life. So, oh, okay. And I was born at Mercy Hospital, which isn't too far from the bayou. Oh. So, well, which wasn't too far from the bayou. But yeah, the the bayou's always been there. I think that's lovely. I, I kind of feel I was born in Baton Rouge, but I, I love going to places with kind of like main rivers going through them. Because oh, I always sure. feel like akin to like, oh, that's Mississippi. I feel like we're akin some way, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, these waterways. That, yeah. That, that's cool. Yeah. Um, how did you start writing poetry? Oh, boy. I was always writing poetry. I wrote it in high school. Um, I wrote it in college. Um, I kept it tucked away in a closet for a long time, um, just boxes of poetry that I really didn't share with anybody. Yeah. And then probably I would say maybe in 1995 or 1996, there was a group in town and it was called the New Orleans Poetry Forum. And um, I started going to the Poetry Forum. Um, we met on Wednesday nights 
and we would meet at the library that was um, that's now the Rosa Keller Library. We would meet there and um, critique our work, share our work, critique it. And I met a really many wonderful people through that poetry forum. Um, Christine Trimbo, Chris Champagne, Clara Connell, all of these people were at this time, Chris Champagne is still here, but they were living here, working poets. And it kind of eventually would push me on to getting my MFA. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. What uh, what was the first piece of writing that you you wrote anywhere in that time period that you just felt proud of it? You felt like you had done something. Well, I wrote a poem um, called Solids and Liquids, and um, it I it got published. Um, and then there was another poem that I wrote called Lunar Pull, and um, that poem also got published. It's sort of like I started writing and and started sending things out. Um, and then there was another poem called Fuego Man, um, and that poem, too, was published all kind of within this same journal. Okay. And so that was, you know, at that time, I was just really starting to share my work, and so it felt good to kind of have it acknowledged by getting it published. Yeah, I could see that. You just need that, that external validation because yeah. it helps you keep yeah. on doing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I think that, that's lovely. And you got your MFA at UNL? I did. Um, how was that experience for you? That was great. Um, I was kind of a, a late-in-life MFA student, and it took me a long time to get it because while I was getting my MFA, I was also teaching middle school. Oh, wow. And so, really, I could only take, like, maybe one or two graduate classes per semester. Yeah. Um, and so, it probably took me maybe about seven years to do it. I feel like I should now be able to write um, prescriptions out rather than just poems <laughs> because it took such a long time. You but, feel like you are a doctor uh, yeah, at your heart, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but that was worth it, too. Well worth it because I feel like... Um, getting my MFA just made me look at my writing and it made me kind of rationalize my writing. Why was I doing what I was do what I was doing? Um, plus, I mean, it exposed me to other poets and, you know, all of the stuff that an MFA does. Yeah, I, I get that. And I love that idea of like being there for that prolonged period. You're making it, you have to make it a practice at that point, right? Right. It's not just like one year and you're done. It's you are continually writing into this. You want this. Right, right. And it seemed at times like the, the goal was really well far yeah. into the distance. <laughs> but um, and of course, Hurricane Katrina factored into things, too. Um, but eventually it happened. So, yeah. yeah. And um, you were teaching middle school, and I know you teach at Delgado now, right? Right, right. Um, what do you love about teaching? What What made you want to become a teacher? I, well, I didn't start off as a teacher. Um, I, you know, since I finished college, oh, man, I did so many things. Um, I worked as an art historian. Um, I wrote um, papers about, or wrote, pieces about antiques. That was actually a cool job. It didn't pay much, but I loved it. Interesting. Um, I also worked for a legal publishing company um, and uh, did a newsletter for them. Okay. Um, and then um, just different things. I worked for a little advertising agency for a yeah. while. Um, and I had to write reports because we did movie screenings and I had to write about 
the audience's reactions to the film. Oh, cool. Um, so I did that, and then, like, I just sort of felt like I need to do something, um, something different, and I get bored with jobs very easily. Yeah. And so I, um, I knew somebody who, um, who knew someone who had a school and said, why don't you teach here? So I started teaching, and then um, I, I've loved it ever since because no two days are ever the same. Yeah. You know, the students are different. What they bring into the classroom is different. Um, and there's really a different dynamic, not just each year, but every day, I think. Um, and so that's really, I think, what I love about teaching is that I find that it's something that's fresh. Yeah. Um, and that that definitely it never I'm never bored with it. Yeah, invigorating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's so great. Yeah. Um, what are your favorite subjects to teach? I know within the writing uh, oh, sure. spectrum, but like, w- what about that? Is there any particular class that you've gotten to do, like a one-off or, or several times in a row that you just love? Well, I recently have done um, a poetry and drama class, which I I enjoyed. Um, I, and I felt like the students were getting somebody who was very lopsided in terms of what I could offer for poetry. And, you know, my drama was a little suspect, my background in drama, but even that I learned a lot by teaching drama. And certainly, um, that was a great class. Um, you know, one class that I really enjoyed way, way back when I first started teaching, I had to teach a, uh, a vocabulary class to middle schoolers that was based with like Latin and Greek words. Okay. And it really, I, I, like class was fascinating to me, but, um, so that, and, um, I've, I've also taught a fiction class, um, but mainly the bulk of what I teach would be composition classes. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, that vocabulary idea. I, I remember at the partner school to the high school I went to, they did a similar thing with mm-hmm. their, their textbook was all Greek and Latin mm-hmm. words and their roots and stuff. And so it's a history class, really. Oh, sure. You know, and I, I love that. I'm sad I missed out on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was it was great. I mean, and it taught me a lot. And then speaking of history, I taught social studies for a while. Oh, what was your specialty? Um, and so I taught um, I taught uh, Louisiana history, and I also taught um, American history. So it was it was you know kind of it was cool being able to do that. Did you make your kids uh, memorize the sixty four pages? No, well, no. But I, were, I one time I was um, teaching them about factory work and, you know, kind of what it was like um, pre-industrial revolution. And so I actually had them sort of um, create, um, they had to create paper chains and they did. And it was very assembly oriented and and it was, you know, so it was just to kind of prove the point of what that that was like. But yeah, 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 yeah. Um, mentioning the other jobs you'd had before within the writing vein, you're coming at it from so many different perspectives of like, um, describing our, our response, our technicalities. How do you think that kind of fed into your poetry? Well, I really do think that when I was working for the, uh, as a researcher slash historian, and I would use that term historian very lightly, <laughs> um, for the antique shop, I do feel that I had to sort of, I didn't always know or we, I couldn't find out often information about the artist or about the clockmaker. Um, and so I had to then 
write about either the painting or I had to write about the object. And that always put things in sort of a framework for me. Yeah. And I feel like with my own poetry, I'm not a poet. You'll see who writes long poems. Um, I operate very much kind of within a frame. Yeah. I'm very comfortable kind of in that sort of limitation. Almost. Yeah, the constraints right there um, built for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, um, so I feel like that job really, really sort of um, helped me with my own work. Okay. Um, and it also caused me to really, I think I have this, this strong connection to color. Um, and to, to visual things in my work. I mean, I like for people, when they hear my work or when they read it, I like for them to really be able to visualize it. Um, and so I would say that that job in particular was very influential. Interesting. Is there a, a specific antique that you still think about or a piece of writing about that that you still think about? Um, I had to one time write about this magnificent, um, it was this... Um, tall case Dutch clock and this clock face had so much going on you know it had the constellations and the astrological signs and um, things written in Latin and you know the sun rising and setting <laughs> and um, archangels sort of enunciating things <laughs> the finials and and that clock was Really, I mean, it was like it was just so much was going on with that clock. But it was kind of fascinating also to see sort of the craftsmanship that went into it um, and just maybe how much the Greeks really loved the gods and goddesses and it, not the Greeks, I'm sorry, the Dutch, how much they loved the gods and goddesses. And um, that was that was a, quite a clock. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, to kind of pivot a little bit, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you coordinate the Poetry Buffet. I do. Um, how did that come about? And tell, tell us a little bit about the program. Well, the Poetry Buffet came about actually as a result. Um, a long time ago, I was in a group. Um, it was myself and three other women. And we we did something. Um, we were um, we were the, the New Orleans Poetry Conspiracy. <laughs> And the women's poetry conspiracy. And we were putting on poetry readings. This was before 2005. We were putting on poetry readings um, at different libraries, and we would feature primarily female readers. The storm came and kind of scattered everybody. Um, and a couple of years after the storm, I was, I was out one day, and I saw one of the librarians from Ladder Library. And this might have been like 2007. And she said, how would you like to do poetry readings again? Um, and so that's when the Poetry Buffet got started. And at that time, I felt that it was really important, not just to limit it to women, but, you know, we were just kind of coming out of the storm after that, you know, during that time. And so it felt like it was it was kind of a, another opportunity for writers to be able to share their work. Yeah. Um, so the series has been been going on since 2007. Um, it happens the first Saturday of each month, um, 2 p.m., and um, it usually features three poets, primarily poets who are um, kind of in this region. Um, and each poet reads for about 15 to 20 minutes. 
And um, it's a wonderful venue because it's, you know, anybody who isn't familiar with the library, it's an old mansion um, and it's right on St. Charles Avenue. And there's really something golden about hearing poetry as the streetcar kind of passes by in the distance. Um, so that's how it all got started, and that's sort of where it is now. Yeah, I, I think that's lovely. I, I've been to one myself, and I hope to go to many more. But I do love that fact that you have all these people studying on the Saturday morning or doing whatever they're doing in the library, and all of a sudden it's time for this reading, and, like, the tables move, the chairs come out, and, like, all these people show up. And I think that's a really lovely experience to have, to have that. Um, I talked to somebody else talking about the idea of libraries being less of a receptacle for books and more of a public space these days. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And that's that in action. And that's certainly um, the librarians at Ladder. That's certainly something that they um, that they advocate. They want poetry in the community. Um, and they recognize the importance of that. Uh, a while back, and we've done things kind of almost like special programs, but um, we did something right after the BP oil spill, and that was that was um, an event. It happened um, in August one night, and we must have had about eighty people in the library. Wow! Um, and and um, poets read. The thing was, though, was that the air conditioner broke. Oh no! <laughs> but we didn't dare stop that reading. I mean, it was so intense and um, it was so necessary and not one person left that reading despite the fact that it was just blistering <laughs> in the library but um, that's kind of the commitment I think that the library does have to poetry yeah um, we've done some others we did a 10-year um, um, commemoration of Hurricane Katrina um, that too was another e event where we probably had about 20 or 30 poets who read. Um, and usually in April, we do something called Poets Reading Poets, mm. which it's about, you know, poets coming in who they read other poets' work. Um, and it's interesting to see, you know, kind of which poet chooses um, <laughs> what poet to read. Yeah. Um, and it's it's nice to see sort of what's what's brought in for that particular event too. I, th I think that's that's lovely. Um, doing a series for such a long time, over 10 years at this point, I know you said you get tired of things not being fresh. What keeps you doing this series in particular? I It's, it's, it's a true labor of love yeah. for one thing. Um, the other thing is, you know, the poetry readings aren't the same. Yeah. Um, but yet, more often than not, there seems to be sort of this cosmic connection almost that poets, the three poets will have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there seems to be something that kind of comes together thematically um, or otherwise that the readings just sort of, they're all different. Um, and that's that keeps it fresh. Yeah. It, how... And curating like the three readers for each month, like how are you thinking about that? Like how their their poetics are going to clash, how they're going to work together, all these things that might come out of it. Or I do tend to, um, you know, I mean, I do. I, the thing that I really want to do with curating these readings is to make sure 
that it's diverse, mm -hmm. um, to make sure that it's not just all men or all women or, you know, that it's that it really truly represents the demographics of the city. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I'm constantly trying to do. Um, but, yeah, it's somehow it, it you know, it works um, and it's 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 it is something that um, it does definitely require a little bit of a commitment and being able to plan, yeah. but um, it comes together month after month. Yeah. You know, come, come rain or shine, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or jazz fest <laughs> or, or jazz Mardi Gras. Or Mardi Gras. Right. All, all the other things that happen. Right. Right. <laughs> no, I love that. Um, what was I going to ask you? Um, being a part of the writing community for such a long time and growing up here in New Orleans, there's a lot of changes, not just from Katrina, but just kind of the ebbs and flows, the mutations of the literary scene here. What's your experience been like kind of watching that unfold and, and seeing like this amount of poetry and literary happenings explode in the city, specifically now? It's a good thing. Yeah. Um, prior to Hurricane Katrina, we had poetry readings going on every night. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly back in the 1990s, there was always something going on. And um, I'm glad to see now, I think that the city has finally kind of come back to maybe where it was, where um, there are different poetry readings that are happening. There's something called the Rubber Flower Poetry Hour. Um, um, there was something at a juice bar on Oak Street. Oh, cool. Um, the You Blah Blah reading. Um, of course, there's the Dragonfly, which has readings there. Um, dog, you know, the dogfish readings. Um, so it's, and the Maple Leaf, which yeah. happens time and time again. Um, so it's good to see all of these different events happening. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, I'm always joyful. There's too many readings and I can barely make any of them. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I'm so glad that they're happening, that people, there's obviously a need for it. Yeah. Um, interesting. Oh, we have a little bit of time left and I'd love if you could share some of the poems that you brought. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, well, I'm going to read, um, how many do you want me to read? I'm going to do, do three. That's three? Fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read one. It's the title of um, the, the collection that I hope to come out in 2019. It's called Weight of the Ripened. Gravity would not allow my father's favorite fruit to dangle from a branch or limb, to be plucked or picked, the absurd weight, a matter, all matter extended from root and vine, prevented any theft or pocketing of the obvious when he stopped by roadsides at pickup trucks flatbeds filled with nearly a pyramid to lift then thump the striated skin, arranged from chartreuse to deep jade. The weight carried beneath his arm shared a tantruming toddler's size. There was no talk of history or origin. Each time he took his knife with the vast blade that held a glint with a single purpose, inserting only the tip gripping the handle to delve the blade deeper, a momentary disappearance and lodging before halves opened in longevity, each side separated with the scope of a heart or robust hemisphere, red fruit enmeshed with the randomness of black seeds. A poem about the river. 
along its course. You would count the pelicans, dappled down, diving, no longer endangered, and stack the rocks to make sculptures of haphazard towers. Walk each morning to the batcher beyond the cypresses' wispy bristles with protuberances visible as fists and knees, bones on the verge emerging from skin. Once you lived this close to an opaque river that reluctantly reflected the stars, ink black by night and bloody brown at dawn, a river that could mark true permanence more than a stain in perpetual search of the vast, its cursive signature swift current steering barges with an omniscience of births and deaths that come unplanned. Excuse me, and the last one, unstoppable. O city of cypresses, live oaks swaddled in ferns around limbs that resurrect after each rain, and jasmine star flecked, beaded, particular tonight, the serious flower which blooms solitary the size of a grenade for only one evening. Those and these storms, always a fetus before infancy, a similar ultrasound image inside you once, fist-sized first, pebble-shaped heart within the womb, a dark ocean empty of islands and archipelagos, this bold body, cerulean, seafoam, indigo, aquamarine, in search of continents to touch dissipating coasts, to toss itself, to hurl and withdraw from the unrelenting business of tides and ebbs, the moon always operative without whims, no, no deviation, an ocean like a womb provides habitation for Genesis and the preemptive counterclockwise spin, a reversal of hours, the gaining momentum, gathering winds, torrents, and squalls, the similarity between landfall and birth. Thank you so much for sharing those. Um, I love in that second one, the, the image is the fists and knees. Oh, thanks. Oh, I thought that was great. Um, before we, we go, I was wondering, um, this will air on Thursday, uh, coming up when we're recording this, uh, what are some happenings at the Poetry Buffet in the next couple months? That... Let's see, yeah. Um, so in February, um, we have Paris Tate, um, we have Benjamin Morris, and Whitney Mackman. Um, all three of them have new kind of new books that have been out recently. Um, in March, um, it's not going to happen the first um, the first Saturday in March, but probably I think it's March 16th. Okay. Um, Dr. Jack Bedell, the um, Poet Laureate, oh. is going to read. Um, so he's coming. And then in April, um, we have Andrew Squitero, um, Peter Cooley, our former Poet Laureate, and um, Brad Richard. So they'll be reading in April. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for those then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and before we go, finally, uh, what are you reading right now? What, what are you excited about for that? What am I reading right now? Um I have, believe it or not, I have a stack of New Yorkers that I'm finally getting through. Um, but um, I'm reading, I'm reading that, and um, I'm reading a book that Claire Martin gave to me called Crone. Um, it's a new book of hers that she just gave it to me like 
two nights ago. So I'm reading that. Solid. Yeah. All right. Well, Gina, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, David.